Today we move on to chapter 3. We're not going to finish the whole book today. That will happen uh, next week. We are going to look at the last big chunk of what Paul has to say to Titus before he starts his final thoughts, which which come in verse 8. So why don't we um, read today's passage together. Titus 3, 1 to 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have had as a church over these weeks to be able to look at this letter to Titus. Heavenly Father, thank you for what we have learned about godliness and how we strive to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will be with us uh, this morning as we look at this last bit, as we look at how we are to live this gospel out well in the world. Heavenly Father, may we be um, both encouraged and challenged by what we read here. Lord God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for this wonderful gospel. We pray that you would be with us now in your mighty name. Amen. Well, if you remember, just a very, very quick recap for those of you who are new. And this letter to Titus has been written by Paul, the apostle. He is on Greece. He is writing to Titus, his close companion in the gospel, who is on the island of Crete. And after a successful mission trip to the island, which Paul and Titus were both engaged in, Titus's job is now to establish this young fledgling church that has sprung up there. And this letter is Paul's instruction manual to Titus as to how he is to establish this church. And if you remember, the main line of the letter is very simply that upon the essential foundation of the apostolic gospel, found in verses 1 to 4, Titus, you are to, chapter 1, choose and build up godly church leaders, so that chapter 2, they can live out and teach the true gospel, that is, the sound doctrine to the whole church, in order that chapter 3, the whole church, may live lives of radical godliness in the world. Chapter 3, verse 1, ready for every good work. And Paul's logic makes sense, doesn't it? Chapter 3, verse 1 is a good place to start. It makes sense that after chapter 1 and chapter 2, the outcome of all of this godliness, the outcome of having godly leaders, the outcome of being a godly church, is to have a profound impact, not just on each other in community, but on the world. And that is where we come to in chapter 3, living out the gospel in the world. Verses 1 and 2 remind the church then to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, when um, Theresa May 
announced sensationally on the steps of Downing Street about four months ago that there was to be a snap election, the press went into meltdown, principally because this was the latest enormous political story to have broken since the last latest enormous political story, which was probably about a week before then. And this election was the last in about 10 elections and referenda across the UK in under five years, and the fourth most important election of our lifetimes. And as you'll remember, I'm sure, the reaction to the news ranked from incredulity to depression to all-out exasperation. And within this political backdrop, there was one tweet that became viral very quickly in the immediate aftermath of that election launch, and it summed up very much how most of us felt. And it summed it up in the most British, tongue-in-cheek, dry, understated way that only a Brit can. And it simply said this, another election, what a time to be alive. Meaning, of course, in British terms, I'd rather be dead than go through another election cycle. But however we feel about the political times we live in, it does highlight, doesn't it, the questions that we as a nation have been really wrestling with. What do we want society to be like? How do we want to live? What do we want to be? What is the best plan for our country's future? And so we have elections to decide which group of people we feel best represent how I would answer those questions. Except it seems from recent history in the UK that we're not particularly good at deciding what that answer should be. Well, as confusing as our political situation is, and as confusing as the answer may be to those questions in human terms, for the UK at least, for the Christian, the answer is very simple indeed. And it is found here in Titus 3. Because the question that the book of Titus is posing is not, how do I want to live? Or what do I want society to be like? It is more fundamentally, how does God want us to live? And what does God want society to be like? In other words, what is God's plan for the UK? What is God's plan for Edinburgh? Or for Morningside? You see, God's plan for Crete is a simple one. It is that churches, verse 5 of chapter 1, are established in every town. Churches that are led by godly men. God's plan for our society, for Edinburgh in our case, is that it may be transformed by the gospel through the church. Through the planting of godly gospel churches, the whole point of the church existing, and the whole point of Paul writing this letter is so that we may adorn the gospel and have it on show so that the world may be attracted by it and ultimately our society then be transformed by it. And this is exactly where we get to in chapter 3. How do we, as God's church, living radically godly lives that have been transformed by the gospel, do so in the world, in the society that we live in? In other words, how do we enact God's plan, not not Theresa May's plan or Jeremy Corbyn's or Nicola Sturgeon's or mine. How do we enact God's plan for Edinburgh? How do we then, point one, adorn the gospel in the world? Well, first of all, as God's representatives on earth, as his church, we are to be submissive to rulers and authorities, verse one, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. 
In other words, very simply, as Christians, we need to be living respectful, obedient lives under the rulers that have been given to us, ready for every good work. It's very simple. This is how we are to adorn the gospel in society. I think this is an intriguing statement of Paul's, and he says this a lot in his letters. Note that Paul does not say that Christians are to take over the roles of leaders and rulers and fight for Christian policy and government. As much as Christians in politics are a force for incredible gospel good, and as much as we need to be in politics and fighting the hard moral and cultural battles of our time, and as much as we would desire and continue to pray to see godly Christian leaders enacting laws in the Bible, we really do pray for that. That's not God's priority. His priority is for the church to be living submissively and obediently under the leaders that are given to us. Now remember, Paul is not writing in a Christian political environment at all. Quite the contrary. Under Rome, in fact, the church is very soon going to see one of the biggest periods of persecution in her history. And yet Paul says, submit and be obedient. Why? Well, we see Paul's reasoning in what he says to the Roman church in Romans 3, 13, verses 1 to 2. And he says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that existed have been instituted by God. In other words, there is no authority on heaven and earth that hasn't first been given authority to rule by God himself. So live under them as you would live under God. Now, Paul says very clearly elsewhere in the New Testament that there are times when laws instituted by man go directly against the laws of God, and we always hold to the law of God. And sometimes that will be to the detriment of our own lives and our standard of living. It may come in this country. We see it in other countries. But our normal, everyday, knee-jerk living out of the gospel should be that we are submissive to our leaders and obedient to them. Very much like how we should be working for our bosses back in chapter 2. Working and living as if we were under God. And in so doing, we are adorning the gospel. And we adorn the gospel in this way because living this way is actually more countercultural than we may think. I think there is an inherent disrespect in the way that we talk about our uh, leaders, isn't there? The the, the name-calling and abuse we see hurled at leaders of all colors, it's truly astonishing, even from Christians. In fact, especially from Christians at points. And I've been involved in this. I sort of do it kind of without thinking, to the praise of my friends who kind of agree with me politically. It's made even worse, the fact that we can hide behind our Facebook walls and our Twitter feeds. Well, that's not how you were to live, says Paul. You aim to radiate the gospel in society, and the first thing you are to do is to live submissively and obediently under your leaders. Show others in society how you are to treat them. Speak well of them. Respect them. Thank God for them. Do we do that? Pray for them. Are we as a church really praying and interceding for our leaders, or are we too busy slandering them? doesn't mean that they shouldn't be heavily criticized or called to account. But do I do all that respectfully and without slander? Live differently, says Paul. But it's not just our leaders we are to speak well of, but others as well. Verse 2, be ready to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. 
And if we were to speak well of our leaders, it makes sense that we would also speak well of each other. And in some respects, that is even harder. I do most of my sermon writing in uh, coffee shops around the city. And I do that because I really enjoy seeing life passing me by, and I enjoy the hubbub of noise and watching people going about their lives and meeting up with other people. And what strikes me is that if you were to listen to the conversations around you in a coffee shop, as I do, principally because they're all very loud, not my fault, then by far and away, the subject matter of most conversations involves a person or a group of people who aren't there in the room. People spend literally their entire day talking about people. And rarely are those conversations centered around encouragement and praise. It's quite often disparaging and spiteful. Vaughan Roberts says it is Britain's greatest pastime, the, the, the gossiping and the slandering of other people. And we as Christians are all very guilty of being involved in this. This is why Paul is writing this to the church. In fact, I think this is one of those respectable sins that we do even without thinking. And Paul knows this. And as is common with Paul, as he represents the negative of how we should live, don't do this, so he buttresses it with the positive. So don't speak evil of people, don't quarrel, don't be slanderous, in other words. But do be gentle and show perfect courtesy. That is, instead of putting people down, you build them up. Being gentle is a beautiful prospect. If you are being gentle when you're with someone, when you're talking about someone, you are not going to be disparaging or slanderous. It makes sense. The two things are mutually exclusive. Being gentle means you are promoting good relationships. It means you are being, as the NIV has it, considerate. You are constantly watching out for people, not just watching out for yourself. You are caring for people, concerned for their feelings and their welfare, even if they are very wrong. It means that you are showing perfect courtesy. What a phrase. That is to, to present yourself as being beneath the person you're talking to and about. That's what courtesy means, to think of them better than you. As you discuss political leaders, as you discuss other people you know around you, as you engage in conversation, as you engage in social events, as you interact with friends, your enemies, normal members of society, as you enact under the grace of God all the things that we've looked at in, in chapter 2, how you work well under your bosses, work well in front of people, as we love our husbands and wives and our children, do I see them all and treat them all as being higher than I am? Do we, as Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or from conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than ourselves? That's what being gentle, showing courtesy, really looks like. That's what obedience and submission and talking well of people looks like. Even when it is never reciprocated. Even when politicians treat us disrespectfully. Even when our friends gossip about us, are we reciprocating, not in kind, but in kindness? Promoting good relationships in society, in, in public and in private. Are we counting others as more significant than ourselves? And when we are truly doing that, then we are truly living this drastically different lifestyle to the society around me. That is when we really are adorning the gospel so that it is blatantly distinctive. 
My goodness, you're not joining in on this conversation. That's telling. That is when I am really involved in living out God's plan for Edinburgh and for Scotland. But all this comes to an important point before we move on. Because there's something else going on in here, in Titus. Paul puts how we respect and speak one of our leaders, and how we respect and speak one of each other, next to each other, very deliberately. And that is because there are two things that are linked by a common thread. And that thread is arrogance. You see, the reason I feel I have the right to disparage and talk ill of a political leader or or of a work colleague or of my boss or of a close friend, even my family, it is because I am fundamentally arrogant. Because I feel, in other words, that, that I am better than they are. I feel that I am right. And so I feel I can comment on how they are behaving and what they are doing wrong and and, and how awful they are. Because in some ways I've convinced myself that I'm standing on this turret of perfection, six feet above contradiction. And that's true, isn't it? We enjoy gossip and slander because it's enjoyable. I enjoy giving it and I enjoy receiving it. I enjoy sitting and listening to someone gossiping about someone else because I like being taken into their confidence. I enjoy nodding wisely, giving advice like a guru, where I am someone who is obviously trusted enough and good enough and upright enough to be told something personal about someone else. It's an enormous ego trip. It makes me feel really good. I feel good because I feel I am not like the person that we're talking about. I enjoy the dizzying heights of being judgmental. Gossip, speaking evil of people, slander, it is insidious and deceptive because it promotes us and makes us feel better about ourselves. It is addictive. It is a judgmentalism that we revel in. Well, says Paul, that is absolutely not the way to behave as Christians in society. Because, says Paul, remember who you once were. And how you were saved. And that's exactly where Paul goes to next. We adorn the gospel in the world, remembering that we have been saved by grace. Verse 3. Do not be arrogant and judgmental, verses 1 and 2. For we ourselves are once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, if if you think you have the right to judge and criticize and and, and slander and gossip about someone else, well, let's throw the lens on what you were once really like. Let's just see what it would be like if we were the topic of heavenly gossip. And the results are shocking. We were foolish, disobedient, gullible slaves who were filled with nothing but malice, that is, a desire for nothing else than to do pure evil. We hated each other, and we were hated by everyone else. We were, in other words, a despicable people who were entirely unloving and unlovable. You, says Paul, have no right to speak ill of people. You, says Paul, were inherently no better than the people that you judge by your slanderous words and your speaking ill of them. You were taken from exactly the same stock of awfulness, one of disobedience to a good God 
and here's the rub, unable to do anything about it. And that's really important. Because not only do we not have a right to be arrogant, judgmental, and slanderous because we are not standing from a position of moral impunity, but even more so is that true when we consider how we were rescued from that position. We didn't take ourselves out of that mess. God did. Verse 5. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God saved us by his unmerited kindness, by his own mercy, by his grace. We did nothing to contribute to that. And this is why Paul is saying this to the church in the midst of what we are looking at in Titus. And this is important. It is that as Christians, in our motivation for godliness, as we strive for being good and holy, all wonderful things born out of a good, heartfelt devotion to a wonderful gospel, and as we see progress in holiness, which is a great thing, there is a danger here we can fall into the trap of thinking that we've made it, that, that, that we've made it. Can you see both the irony and the warning here? Even in my striving for godliness, I can do it in a sinful way. As we are striving for godliness, it can be that that temptation for pride, for self-congratulation, it begins to creep in. And we genuinely begin to see ourselves as better than other people, thinking that I've made myself better somehow. And when that happens, it makes sense then that we see ourselves as being more important than our leaders, where we can disparage them and disrespect them, when we can see ourselves as being above the law, perhaps, thinking that, well, I'll do it differently, and so I shall. We see ourselves as being more heavenly-minded, more able to judge, more able to pass criticism. This is where the way we treat our leaders and each other in society really begins to show. Can you see that? But remembering where we've come from and just how we have been saved removes that attitude completely. I find myself entirely unable to be judgmental at all. I remember Andy Buchan giving an example of this in one of his sermons on this um, um, passage, actually. And I'm going to use it again because it's so good. He said, it is like you having been messing around in a boat and getting into serious trouble. You're lost at sea and a kind lifeboat person comes and saves you. And as you sit in the boat, having been freed from your calamity by nothing that you have done, you see someone else messing about in the boat, heading for destruction, getting themselves into serious trouble. And you turn around in your seat with your life jacket on, and you pontificate about how foolish and stupid they are, how much they deserve to get what's coming to them, how they should have known better. Can you see? Can you see how shocking it is to live that way? How arrogant... It goes against the very nature of being a Christian. Being a Christian means living a life that has been made possible because of grace. Living a life assuming that we've made it possible by our own works and righteousness, well, that's not living a Christian life at all. That's why Paul writes this warning to the church. As they strive for godliness, even in your godliness, you're having to rest on grace daily. In your striving to be holy, remember who made it possible for you to even begin to think about living a holy life. 
That's what we looked at last week in chapter 2. Remember that you have been saved by grace. Now, we do have to be careful here. The truth is that as Christians, living on the gospel as found in the Bible, as, as, as handed down by the apostle Paul and the other apostles, there is a truth to what is good and right way to live in society. Furthermore, especially within the church, we have to be really strong, really firm in the face of rampant liberalism and increased licentiousness and the entire, entirely sort of misappropriated notion of, well, who am I to judge? I'm not going to comment on anything. And often that phrase is wafted out over people as a way to excuse serious sin or as an excuse not to take any line of scripture that seems un- uncomfortable or un-PC. That is absolutely not what is going on here. We are not called to be spineless. In fact, as we'll see next week, we need to be incredibly serious with how we deal with divisive people in the church for the sake of the gospel. There is a standard to which we are called to live and which is right for society and which is best for individual humans, and we as Christians need to exemplify that, as we've been looking at over these past two weeks. And we need to be firm and loving and direct with people who call themselves Christians who aren't living that way. But we live out that truth, that gospel, lovingly and beautifully and kindly, not judgmentally. This means we don't give in, for example, let's take this example, to the temptation to to bend on sexual ethics. I don't agree to disagree and move on. I don't do that. I stand firm on the Bible's teaching. But neither do I hammer those who aren't Christians from the perspective of someone who knows better. That's not loving at all. I would want to start off in this kind of conversation, dealing with these kind of issues with maybe a misguided Christian or with a non-Christian friend by saying, first, I am a ruin when it comes to biblical sexual ethics. That's my starting point. That's Paul's starting point in verse 3. I'd want to say I have struggled with the Bible's teaching on this as much as everyone has and everyone ever will. But can you see how wonderful the Bible's teaching is on this? Can you see that God's plan for man and woman and family security is a wonderful thing? I'm convinced by that. And I I try to live this out because I think Jesus, who says this stuff, is worth following and obeying. Because look at where I was um, in verse 3. I was desperate, living a life I assumed was right, but I was wrong. And by now, by no merit of my own goodness, Jesus on the cross as my sacrifice has saved me and made me new. And made me want to live this different life that is a good thing for me to live. Why would I not want to follow him? I want to share this gospel with you too. It's a difficult line to follow. But it is one as a church that we must follow. To teach sound doctrine, as we spent a lot of time on last week. And to be unbending on that. But to do so gently, lovingly, without slander and with real grace. That is how you win people over to listening to the gospel. And this brings us on to our last point. Because remember, as we've been saying all along, we don't live out the gospel just because we have been changed by it, which in and of itself is a wonderful thing. We don't just live out the gospel so that we can look distinctive for the sake of being different. And we don't live out the gospel in a way to show people that we're right at all. We live out the gospel because we want others to be able to live out the gospel. 
We want our society to be transformed from where they are in verse 3, where we were, lost, despised, disobedient, and foolish, but now in verse 5, renewed and regenerated by the washing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, we live out this gospel, and we proclaim this gospel so that people in our society, in our world, might be saved. We adorn the gospel in the world, remembering that we have been saved by grace because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. I don't know if you spotted this in Titus, but time and again we see salvation be attributed to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just flick back over the book with me as we do this. This is really interesting. It's helpful. Chapter 1, verse 3, by the command of God our Savior. Chapter 1, verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. 2, verse 10, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 2, verse 13, waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 3, verse 4, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. 3, 6, the Holy Spirit that has been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. What is God's plan for Edinburgh and the world through this gospel? For people to be saved. He is a saving God. That's his business. The whole point of this letter is that people are saved. That's his manifesto. That's his plan for Scotland. That the church may adorn the gospel in the world. Remembering that we have been saved by grace. Because of and with thanks to Jesus Christ our saviour. Remembering that, remembering the end goal of why I live a godly life, that is to evangelize, to speak the gospel, and remembering too where I once was, lost and despised, and remembering who did this for me, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave his life for me, gives and drives me, gives me real purpose and resolution as I strive to adorn the gospel in a godless world. I do it so that the godless world may come to know God, their saviour. And so I don't stand up against the world in heroic, misplaced judgmentalism. I sit with the world and invite them into this incredible life. Lovingly, resolutely, purposefully, deliberately, firmly, as someone did with me when they held out to me the gospel of grace and the gospel of life. And with that in mind, remember what this gospel of salvation does for people, verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This gospel gives people two things, a status and a hope. This gospel makes people heirs of God. That's their status. That's our status, inheritors of everything that God has in store for a redeemed mankind, which in turn provides for people a real hope as they live towards an eternal life where this inheritance will be fully realized. That is why we live out the gospel in society and in the world. And being kind, speaking well of people, being obedient to our leaders and sitting with people in real fellowship as fellow fallen but now gloriously redeemed people is how we live out the gospel in our society. 
And we can then say, with no sense of irony, what a time to be alive. To live in the age of the church, where the Holy Spirit, verse 5, regenerates and renews real people under the grace and the mercy of a good God through the saving work, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a time to be alive. And also, what a way to be alive. What a way to live. To live not just for ourselves and for our good, but for the salvation and eternal good of other people, whom God in his mercy has placed us alongside here in Morningside. Not living in death and destruction and foolishness and disobedience, but living lives of holiness and living lives of evangelism. Charmers, are we doing this? Are we willfully living out the gospel of grace, lovingly, gently, firmly, so that we may be distinctive, in order that they may be saved? Are we? Are we holding our tongues, battling gossip, respecting our leaders, and loving our friends and our enemies as we adorn the gospel in front of a godless world and hold out and preach this gospel of incredible eternal life? Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much for this wonderful gospel. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder of where we were and just what we were like, completely lost and helpless and unable to do anything about it. Heavenly Father God, thank you so much that in your mercy and your grace you came down and you rescued us by nothing that we have done. Heavenly Father, thank you that we only stand here because of your grace this morning. Heavenly Father, help us to remember that in our striving for godliness, even that is done every day standing on your grace in, 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 in repentance and in asking for forgiveness and in moving on. Heavenly Father, above all, I pray that this would make us not judgmental, but people who hold out and cling firm to the sound doctrine of God our Savior that saves people for an eternity. Heavenly Father, may we be robust in the world, but may we be loving and kind and gentle and good. Help us to love good. Help us to speak well of people and of each other. Help us to speak well of our leaders. Help us to be obedient and submissive to each other, we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all this good stuff we've been able to revel in over these past few weeks. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us, Father, as we battle sin and as we go out and preach the gospel. Lord God, may we see by your Holy Spirit in Morningside your plan worked out. May we see people saved for the gospel. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.